Hello, I'm Julian Bergini and welcome to the first Microphilosophy podcast of 2012. The emphasis this time is very much on micro. Put the kettle on now and you'll have hardly sipped your tea by the time it's over. But what follows are a very rich 10 minutes indeed, in which sociologist Steve Fuller not only introduces the main themes of his recent book, Humanity 2.0, What It Means to Be Human Past, Present and Future, but also explains why he doesn't always say what he really believes. Joining the discussion, which was recorded at a Foyles bookshop in Bristol in association with the Bristol Festival of Ideas, was the philosopher Darian Meacham. A naive reader might assume that this book is called Humanity 2.0 by Steve Fuller and the subtitle is What It Means to Be Human Past, Present and Future. They might assume that what we're going to get in this book is what you sincerely believe to be true about this case. Now, the reason I say that is you wrote an article for the Philosopher's Magazine when I was editor. Great piece, really great piece, in which you sort of challenge the idea that the job of someone in your position is actually to tell the truth as they see it. Could you explain a bit? Because that might help us to understand how to read your book. Well, that's, a, uh, that's an interesting way to begin the discussion. Uh, I do recommend you look at this piece. I mean, the premise of the piece is if you're engaged in a kind of discourse like this and you want to actually promote the cause of truth in the long term, what is it that you should be saying at any given moment? Should you say what you believe to be true or should you say something that in fact helps to promote the conversation to go forward so that whatever the truth happens to be, it'll be more likely to be reached? And so with that in mind, my own view has been typically to, you might say, uh, balance out arguments. So at any given time, there'd be a certain kind of position that would be kind of the dominant position, the position that most people believe, the position that has the most evidence mobilized around it. Uh, And it's very easy for a consensus to form around that. And unfortunately, the consensus often sort of solidifies and stabilizes. And so somebody like me comes along and basically says, well, you know, you're, you know, there are things here that we need to consider to, you know, that, that might want us to sort of rethink some of the fundamentals of what we're about. Now, do I actually believe that those things that I'm bringing up are the decisive factors? Not necessarily, but nevertheless, I do believe that arguing them helps move the discourse forward and gets us closer to the truth. And is that the case in this book? I mean, is this, are you saying the things you think need to be said at this point in the conversation more than you are saying necessarily what your own stance is? Well, I'm actually genuinely up in the air about the topic of this book. What I do believe is true, okay, and I believe I'd like you to believe is true, is that what it is to be a human being is very much at a crossroads now. And that sort of taken for granted notions of what it means to be human in terms of, in some sense, being this sort of complex of a material and spiritual entity, half animal, half God, as it was, as it used to be put, Um, that's becoming destabilized. Uh, And that there are a lot of interests, as it were, pulling apart, you might say, this sort of coalition, this metaphysical coalition that is, in the modern period, constituted human beings. Uh, Some of us wanting to uh, blast off, you might say, in a more mentalistic direction. And in the book, I identify those with the sort of technologically uh, oriented people at the extreme, the sort of singularity people who want to take sort of the mental properties of human beings and, as it were, embody them in a form that makes them more durable and more powerful and forget about the biological side of humans. But on the other hand, of course, there are those people who want us to re-embed more in nature, as it were, to go back to our natural roots, to kind of uh, become more one with nature, with more one with the animals, and in, and in a way, very much distrust uh, sort of the kinds of mental characteristics that tend to distinguish us 
much from animals and tend to, as it were, give us these delusions of grandeur to lead to a lot of the problems that arguably we have today with regard to climate change and all the rest. And I do think that, that, that that's kind of the crossroads we're in. And especially if you look at the younger generation, I think younger people are kind of voting with their feet on this issue. Right? Some going on a sort of ecological, environmental side on the one hand, and others you know, going off into cyberspace and entertaining very serious notions of genetic modification and technological enhancement and things of that kind. And so I do believe that that's kind of the issue that we're faced with in terms of defining humanity in the future. And what my book tries to do is not only to present that problem, but basically to say that that problem's kind of always been with us, at least since the late Middle Ages in the West. And it's one of the defining issues of what it is to be a human being throughout. And so uh, that, that's basically the premise of the book. I mean, you say it's always been with us. A phrase you use, a very great sentence to open the book, proper first chapter, is that to be human is to identify both an animal and an ideal. So the idea of the human has always expressed an ideal as well as just a description of the animal. Well, that's right. And, and one of the points that I make uh, very explicit in the book is that in the modern era, where the concept of the human actually starts to take on its kind of universalistic character, uh, it becomes a project, right? This is the business about the ideal. It's something you're working toward. Because if you look at classical culture, the ancient Greeks and the Romans, where they did have some ideal of the humane, that was mostly seen as kind of an elite property. It wasn't seen as something that all members of Homo sapiens were entitled to or eligible for and so forth. But as you get into the modern era, you do start to see this idea about humanity as a project that needs to be realized through some sort of collective effort. You know, the most obvious example of this would be the socialist project, of course. But there are others as well. Uh, and in a sense, you know, that, that became kind of a very clear benchmark of, of what a human is. Something that, in a sense, we have to ensure that all homo sapiens have. Now, my point is, I think the salience of that ideal is dropping out to a certain extent. And so does that reflect in the fact that, I mean, if you think of things like the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, you are human simply in virtue of being a species member, and that's, you're saying, is sort of a, a modern development. Yes, if you look at the ancient Greeks, for example, and you look at the, when they talk about what it is to be a human being, it's to be, be basically have the capacity to participate in the public sphere, and that's a pretty restricted thing. You know, in the, in the dialogues of Plato, there's a discussion about, you know, who's eligible to get the kind of training it is to be a good person. Good character enters into it. So there are all these obstacles, as it were, to becoming fully human that does not exist in the modern era. And in fact, one of the interesting things that happens, you might say, to moral consciousness in the modern era is you actually get philosophers, starting with Rousseau and Kant and so forth, as it were, making elite people feel guilty that everyone isn't, as it were, you know, given the same sorts of privileges, the same sort of respect, the same sort of empowerment as everyone else is. And then that becomes, as it were, a, you know, statecraft becomes dedicated to the project of trying to redress that problem. But it only becomes a problem in the late 18th century when you start to get, you know, the Declaration of Human Rights first in the French, you know, the French Revolution. And of course, that on that basis, you know, in the modern period, the United Nations Declaration, which you were alluding to before. Darren, if I bring you in here, one of the things about defining humanity is that we've become, I don't know if we've become or always have been, really keen to try and find that identifying mark, the thing that distinguishes us from the animals as a historical well, project. I mean, what, the question I just wrote down is actually, you know, what is it to be a species member? That's not very clear anyway. So we jump very, very quickly, and we, we, we feel safe in doing that to sort of to make this equation, okay, to be a human being is to be a member of, the human, of, the, of a species, the human species. But in, in fact, I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure that's such a good starting You're right. You're, you're absolutely right, especially under a Darwinian framework mm -hmm. where there aren't these kind of clear, yep. absolute, natural yeah. kind species boundaries. See, the whole idea of talking about species boundaries as being a way of defining the human 
from, from the non-human is a kind of a relic to an older biological sensibility mm -hmm. where, you know, natural kinds, that is to say to species, were essences. You know, they had these, you know, intrinsically defining properties. But what we know about genetics as the constitution of all species, as it were, is that to, you know, what, 95, 97% of genetic overlap between us and other animal species, and it's not clear where one draws the cut, and whether if one could draw the cut, whether it would be something that would be kind of interesting, you know, from the standpoint of the traditional things we've or wanted to uphold as human. Whether it would be ethically salient. Yes, exactly, is, is exactly. And that's why, yeah. and that's why in the modern era, you know, if you get people like Peter Singer, the great defender of animal liberation, one of the things that he wants to do that's very important is to shift the ground of moral relevance from the sorts of properties that traditionally distinguished us from animals. So the ability to reason, to be autonomous, you know, in a way appealing to sort of the more spiritual aspects of our being, right? The kind of thing, if you know about Immanuel Kant, what he tried to do, and rather say that moral relevance lies at a level that, that is actually common with animals, at least those with nervous systems, which has to do with, you know, avoiding suffering, avoiding pain. Right? And in that case, then, the moral economy encompasses not just human beings, but basically any creature that can, can experience pain, and that's where the moral relevance should be. Or you, you draw, and you mentioned benevolence and empathy in your, in your book, and I think this is another way yes, in which we might start to think about what the sphere of humanity might, in fact, look like. We need not define it in terms of a species, but perhaps in terms of a sphere of, of empathy. But, that, but that's dangerous. You see, yes. that's, that's dangerous because <laughs> benevolence and, and the sympathy and that's, these kinds of ideas are very much predicated in your ability. Uh, typically, they have to do with ha you're having some kind of contact with the other being's concern. They're, as it were, part of your environment, and you have concern for them because they're part of your life world. But of course, what about the people in Darfur who are not part of our life world? But I, I'm not, see, I, I, mean, that's I, I, the, I know that this is the this is the common objection to the that I mean that empathy almost takes us to a sort of population concept of species instead of that's instead right. Of an, but does. I'm not so I'm not so convinced that it, that remains the case today. I'm not I'm not so convinced that I'm not through various means capable either of universalizing to some extent the the experience or the encounter the empathic encounter that I have with another, or that. The, 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 the people in Darfur are so separated from me in terms that my life world now doesn't in fact include to some, to some degree those people, maybe not in my everyday encounters. No, I don't have the same sort of empathic relationship with someone in, in Darfur that but, I have with my yeah, child but, or with you. Yeah. Yeah. But I can have okay. an empathic relationship okay. nonetheless. If you enjoyed that, with the help of the Bristol Festival of Ideas, we'll be recording further podcasts at Foyles Bookshop in Bristol over coming months. Go to foils.co.uk or to ideasfestival.co.uk for details, or follow the Microphilosophy Twitter feed, or subscribe to the feed at julianbagini.com. The next podcast was also a Microphilosophy at Foyles event, and features John Bradshaw looking into the minds of dogs. So until then, if nothing prevents, goodbye. <laughs>